This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see you guys in here. Uh, This morning, we're going to pause just for the Sunday in our series through Colossians and do uh, a bit of housekeeping as we talk about rediscovering uh, the church, rediscovering the church and letting um, God speak to us about some things organizationally in the life of the church and how God has designed the church to function. Um, and, and for those of you that have been around church for a while and maybe your hairs are starting to raise, this is planned. So like it, it's not like a bomb went off this last week and we're like, hey, we have to pause Colossians and deal with something. So um, this has been planned. We knew we were going to pause Colossians um, and talk about how God has structured and designed um, his church to work in a way that reflects his will and his purposes. So we're going to do that this morning. You can be turning to uh, the first chapter of Philippians if you want to. That's where we're going to, uh, that's where we're going to start. Uh, we're going to move around a little bit, but we will start in the book of Philippians with chapter 1, uh, just reading and looking at a couple of verses there. Um, if you've been around uh, the church for a while, local churches, and been engaged and involved, it is likely uh, that you've been hurt at some point, right? Now, that doesn't say as much about the church as it does about us as human beings and human nature. Can I, can I break it down more simply? If you've been in a relationship very long with anyone of any kind, you've been hurt at some point. Could we agree to that? But I will say this, much of the damage that is done, uh, I I think the vast majority, I hope, I pray to God, unintentionally by local churches seems to come when churches are not organized and operating as God has designed the local church to be organized uh, and to be operating. When we lose a sense of our identity and our mission before God, when we lose a sense of how God has layered the church uh, to operate, I think uh, you see heightened senses of disunity and conflict and disorganization and problems within the church that ultimately result in people being hurt. And we uh, want to make sure as a church that we uh, are both organized and operating Not just how God has designed us to do that. Um, I I heard a guy say uh, this week that you you could be perfectly structured and dead, right? Uh, And we don't want to do that. But we don't want to be imperfectly structured and alive and certainly don't want to be imperfectly structured and dead. I'm not sure where I'm going with this. But we want uh, the Spirit of God to fill us individually, fill us as a church, and we want to agree with God and walk in obedience and excitement and delight in how God has organized his church to function. Um, Let's look at just the first two verses of the book of Philippians, and then we'll move on and out from there a bit. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. 
Now let me pause there. I'm not going to um, exegete these couple of verses, pick them apart in depth. We did that. Uh, this, this greeting of Paul's is very similar to his greeting in the book of Colossians. Uh, the second week of our series in Colossians, we broke down those couple of greeting verses. You can go back and listen to that if you want to. But I want to um, just draw your attention to a couple of things here. One is the way that Paul introduces himself and Timothy. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Well, the apostle Paul wasn't simply a servant. He was renowned even in his own day for his intellect, for his uh, command of theological issues. He had studied under the best, been tutored by the best, and had the widest influence of any of the apostles by the time he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. But what you and I need to take away from this is that what mattered to Paul was who he was in relation to Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if this was enough for us? If it was enough for you that you were a servant of Jesus Christ? No matter how much money you made, no matter how successful you are, were, no matter uh, how many people knew your name, if it was enough for you that you simply were a servant of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how that sets you free? Can you imagine how that um, makes way for God to change and transform your character? This is how Paul saw himself primarily. And then he says who he's addressing the letter to. And what you're going to see here is in a single verse what we find represented throughout the New Testament and in various forms and precursory shadows, if you can be a precursory shadow, throughout the Old Testament, you find three categories of people within the local church. Not three levels, you hear me? But three categories of people within the church. You see members, you see deacons, and you see elders. Let's look at this. Paul says he writes the letter to God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, a very specific set of people, people in Philippi, the city of Philippi, but not just people in the city of Philippi, God's holy people who are in Christ Jesus in the city of Philippi, which constitute the actual church of Christ in Philippi, the regenerate membership, which means uh, men and women whose hearts have been made alive by the saving and redeeming work of God who have come to place their faith and their trust in Christ Jesus by the grace and the mercy of God. And when Paul talks about them as holy people, he's simply saying, I'm writing this to you who have been set apart, who've been called out of and separated from evil and consecrated to fulfill God's purposes on earth. You and I aren't just redeemed from something, you're redeemed to something. You're redeemed into the people of God and into the mission and purposes of God. Paul is making very clear here that there is a sense of, of congregational uniqueness in the church in Philippi. And what that means is they knew who belonged to the church and who didn't belong to the church. It wasn't just who attended. It was those whose hearts had been opened, those who had, been, who had responded to the call of God in Christ with faith. 
There were always more people around just as there are today in our churches. There were more people gathering into house meetings and gathering when the church gathered, exploring, listening, thinking, processing, responding at different levels and in different stages. But the New Testament is very clear, though it does not use the word membership, that there was a kind of formal membership throughout local churches. They knew who was in and who was out. And I know in our touchy-feely day, we don't like that language, right? But the only thing that keeps you from being out is yourself, right? The only thing that keeps me uh, completely removed from the people of God is my decision not to say yes to the wooing, calling, powerful work of the Holy Spirit as God calls me to redemption and forgiveness. And as we look at the words that you see throughout the New Testament, flock, temple, body, household, you guys are smart. You're a thinking people. These are terms that have an in and an out, right? You know what's part of a flock and what's not. I grew up in a ranching family. My family still ranches. You can have a lot of cattle, and it's amazing how you can still know these aren't yours, and these are yours. There's an inside and an outside to a flock. The temple clearly had an inside and an outside, did it not? And how you entered, and the degree to which you entered, and your place in there was marked out. A body has an inside and an outside. You know that if anything has ever come into your body that didn't belong there. I remember uh, I was always climbing trees as a kid, and I remember falling out of a huge mesquite tree uh, in northwest Texas one day and catching myself. And when I caught myself, I just happened to come down on a limb that had a mesquite thorn sticking straight up, and I stuck it straight through my hand. And there's no way to get off there but just kind of pull and snap it off and drop and then work with it from that point. You, You know there's an inside and outside of your body when something enters that should not be there households, you know who belongs to your home and who doesn't, right? People who belong typically order or enter at free will through the door, and they leave the same way. Like if I catch someone coming in the window at my house, we're probably going to have problems. That's not how people who belong enter a household. I could go on and on here. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul instructs the church in Corinth on what to do when the whole church has gathered. Which insinuates that the church at Corinth knew when all the members were present, right? So there's this category of members, which uh, congregational churches, of which we're a part um, as Baptists, congregational churches have uh, not done a good job with for a long, long time and are starting to rediscover the fact that to be a member means something, right? And many of you have heard me say many times, the, the days of being a member here without any expectations or consequences are over, right? Being a member means you said yes to Jesus. You've been brought into the people of God. You are shouldering and a part of the mission and the ministry of Christ. And your brothers and sisters in Christ can count on you for that. They can expect that you were serious when you said yes to Jesus. And your pastoral staff and leaders in the church are are going to treat you like you're serious, like you really want to grow and you're serious about following Jesus. But we don't just see uh, if the word's not used there, the concept of membership as he talks about God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, we see two other categories of people. He says, together with the overseers 
And deacons. Let's take this word deacons just briefly because uh, many of you in here are at least categorically familiar with this. Deacons are, are a form of, of kind of formally commissioned servants in the church that when they, they do what God has tasked them with doing, the way that God has tasked them to do it, uh, they empower the church in a really unique way. Um, Jamie Dunlap, Dunlop has a great uh, quote about deacons. He says, deacons are shock-absorbing servants. Deacons are shock-absorbing servants. And what Jamie is doing is pulling from uh, kind of the, the, the beginning of what would become the deacon ministry in Acts chapter 6 and seeing that, that the first people that did sort of formal deaconing in the church were chosen to make peace. They were chosen to bring unity where there was at that time racial disunity in the church at the very earliest sense. And in that uh, in that way, they're shock absorbers, right? When deacons are deaconing correctly and they are the correct ones to be doing it, um, they still the waters of a church in an appropriate way. They are peacemakers, they're unifiers, and they're servants. They're servants. But we see a, a third category here that we translated overseer. We'll look in a minute and see the words for overseer, pastor, and elder. Uh, three separate words, but used um, interchangeably and sometimes synonymously in the New Testament, sometimes in the very same passage. Overseers or elders. H.B. Charles uh, spoke about the, the distinct difference between elders and deacons uh, in this way. He said, elders serve by leading and deacons serve, lead by serving. Elders Serve by leading. I messed that all up. Let me see if I can run at it again. Maybe I messed up. Maybe I didn't. I don't even remember what I said. Elders serve by leading, and deacons lead by serving. This is what we see throughout the New Testament. Again, Jamie Dunlop puts it this way with regard to these three categories. He said, elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, and the congregation does ministry. That is faithful to the New Testament witness. That is God how, how God lays out his church to operate. So this concept of, of elders is something that sometimes can be new to people or worse. See, I'm not so worried about those of you that may be in here this morning that the word elder is a little bit new unless you are just used to it speaking to someone who's older than you. My concern for you this morning is for those of you who have been at a place where elders didn't do what elders were called to do in the way that they were called to do it. And now you've got damage and you've got baggage with this word, and we've got to see God redeem a beautiful word and a beautiful concept for you that he has uh, sovereignly designed his church to walk in. Let me give you kind of a broad sweep of some of what we see with regard to elders in the New Testament. First of all, uh, elders are found in the churches of Judea and the surrounding area, Acts 11 and James 5. So from the very beginning, elders uh, were beginning to form. We see within 15 years of the close of Jesus' ministry and his ascension, uh, the formalizing of leadership and structures within the New Testament. Elders governed the church in Jerusalem. Acts 15 wasn't just a big church meeting. It was a gathering of the elders and the leaders. And we see this throughout church history with councils um, that were brought together under the power and the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to help us come to understand things that are New Testament theological concepts that you and I take for granted now, like the Incarnation and the Trinity, councils like uh, Nicaea and Chalcedon and Constantinople. It, it wasn't wide churches gathering. It was elders and bishops of the churches coming together under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. 
We also see that among the Pauline churches, leadership by a plurality of elders was established. In the churches of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, we see that in Acts 14. In the church at Ephesus, Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3 and 5. In the church at Philippi, and in the churches on the island of Crete, Titus 1, we'll look at in just a minute. Which means this, that God knows it's best when leadership is not vested in one person, but in a group of people that are are called by God, gifted by God for the oversight of his church, accountable to one another and God for the way in which they do what God has tasked them to do. We also see that according to the the well-traveled letter of 1 Peter, elders existed in churches throughout northwestern Asia Minor, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Finally, at least for this morning, in terms of a broad stroke, we see that there are strong indications that elders existed in the churches in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, and in Rome, Hebrews 13. All right? This was a normal structuring of the life of the early church and much of the church throughout history. So what I want us to do this morning is just take a brief, don't worry, that wasn't all introduction. So what I want us to do is to to briefly look at how the Bible would answer three questions. Who are elders? What do elders do? And how do elders do what they do? Let's take this first one. Who are elders? Who are elders? And we're going to look at it this morning from Titus from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. You find uh, an almost um, exact, it's not quite exact, but an extremely similar list of characteristics and expectations, requirements for elders in the church in 1 Timothy 3. But we're going to look at the list in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Who are elders? Paul says to Titus, he says, the reason I left you in Crete or on the island of Crete, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. As I directed you, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. All right, let's, let's walk through this just a bit, just a bit. In 1 Timothy 3, we see um, the characteristics laid out for both elders and deacons. They are uh, similar at most points with some distinctions a little bit. But elders, in a sense, are spiritually mature and maturing individuals in the church that God calls out or places a call within their lives as he does all of us to use our spiritual gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit for ministry within the church. Elders are called to to utilize that. And their characteristics are thrown out here. Let's look at this. 
An elder must be blameless. We see that in verse 6 and verse 7. Let me tell you what blameless doesn't mean, and then we'll talk a bit about what it does. Blameless does not and cannot mean faultless or flawless. Because other than Jesus Christ, no human has ever walked this earth who is faultless and flawless. Rather, it's this picture of being above reproach. And I want us to be careful with that. That doesn't mean above accusation. Jesus himself did not live above accusation. People accused him all the time of being a sinner by being friends with sinners, of being a, a glutton because of being at parties, of being a, a drunkard because he drank in the presence of people that overdrink, and so on and so forth. It simply means when that mud's thrown at you, it doesn't stick, right? It doesn't stick that, that you take seriously your progressive sanctification before God. Faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, how many of you in here have ever had kids? Go ahead, don't, don't be ashamed. It's, it's God's fault, not yours. Yes. Um, how many of you have ever at times seen your children act in such a way as to be characterized as being wild and disobedient? Yes. How many of you would even say you went through seasons where one or more of your children could have been characterized as being wild and disobedient. Yes. We go through hours at our house where we're just trying to stop children from breaking something of value. We don't care if they break their stuff because we're just not going to buy any more of it. Yeah, this, this is not meant to be mechanical, right? When we, when we look at this uh, in the context of the family illustration and metaphor that Paul uses here and in 1 Timothy 3, it, it is the picture of a married man being a one-woman man. You guys have probably heard that before, a one-woman man. On the island of Crete, it primarily would have meant he's not a polygamist, right? It does not mean that a single man can't function this way, and it does not mean that a divorced man can't function this way, Right? You and I have to be sensitive to the movement of the Holy Spirit. We have to look at situations, right? It doesn't mean that someone who has a child who's going through a tough season is disqualified from eldership. What it does mean is that if your house is burning down, it would behoove you to tend to that and not to the house of God. Does that make sense? Yes. If your own home is burning down, that's where your focus needs to be, not in leading within the church. Then Paul moves on and he says, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be, and he has a little list of to be's and to not be's, or not to be's. Blameless, we talked about not overbearing, not quick-tempered. That doesn't need a lot of definition. Not given to drunkenness. I mean, it's a simple thing to know drunks make bad elders. Uh, drunk makes, drunks make bad leaders in general and bad everythings in general. But not just that. Also not given to violence or pursuing dishonest gain, right? So greedy, drunken rageaholics do not make good church leaders. Greedy, raging, drunkaholics, could I say that? Drunkards, that's an old word. I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Um, 
Well, let's move on. Verse 8. Rather, rather than characterized by, by these things, by being quick-tempered, uh, by being out of control, by being uh, one who's prone to being drunk, by being one who's prone to violence, uh, prefer, uh, prone to greed, to, to gaining money for personal wealth and investment, he must be hospitable. Hospitable. One who loves what is good and who is self-controlled. Upright, holy, and disciplined. Now look at verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. In other words, he must hold firmly to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to know it, to sit in it, to be clothed in it, to glory and revel in it, so that he can encourage others, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. This word for doctrine here is the same word that we translate teaching, by sound teaching. We'll talk more about it in a minute, but that's one of the duties of elders. They have to be able to teach. Not necessarily teach like I'm teaching up here, though many of them, whether lay or paid, will in time be able to do this kind of teaching and preaching. But they need to be able to. They need to know the gospel. They need to be able to go to lunch with someone who calls and says, can you help me understand this thing theologically or this thing biblically? And they're competent and confident to say, yes, I can. And go and sit down and do that as an elder. And finally, they're able to refute those who oppose them. They're not wusses just because they're not prone to violence and ill temperance, right? They're strong. They're able to push back where pushback is needed, but they do it in the way that it's needed. And this uh, last aspect here of handling doctrine, handling theological matters in the church well, is really significant as we look at the role of elders throughout the church in the New Testament and history. Uh, Alistair Begg, if you haven't discovered, discovered Alistair uh, Begg yet, I, I hope you will, but Alistair Begg said this. He says, uh, there, that is, elders' expressions of care are directly tied to leading the congregation by the Word of God. In other words, this is at the center of how elders are, are called by God to express love and care for the congregation is by leading the church by the word of God. And then he said to his own church, if you want to know if I've stopped loving and caring for you, it's when it becomes apparent that I've stopped reading and studying my Bible. When it becomes apparent that I've stopped teaching you from the Bible. He said, I'm just telling you funny stories and rambling on about stuff for 20 or 30 minutes on Sunday morning. And he was particularly saying this, uh, uh, as opposed to hugs in the hallways and small talk. Um, hard to imagine that uh, such an accusation could be brought, but he was saying, uh, I, I'm trying to learn to be more of a, you know, hug hauler. Uh, hug hauler? That's wrong. I don't know what's wrong with me this morning. Um, hall hugger. He's trying to learn to become more of a hall hugger. Um, I'd say one more word. I'll say one more word, and then we'll move on to what uh, elders do. This is who elders are. The, the, this is uh, the kind of character in Christ that, that elders are called to have and to walk in and to grow in by the grace and the mercy of God. But I'll talk with you about the interchangeability of words. Presbyteros is the word we use for elder, episkopos. 
You'll see overseer, poimain, pastor or shepherd, overseer or bishop is episkopos. But you see these words used interchangeably. We'll see them used that way in just a minute. And we find both, uh, in a sense, in the New Testament, as it talks about uh, those uh, elders whose main labor is the teaching and preaching of the word being due double honor, which deals both with respect and how they're compensated. Um, We find that even in the New Testament and today, Typically, uh, as we order ourselves around uh, the way that God has designed the church to function, your uh, church is going to have some paid elders, uh, pastoral staff, and as l- churches get larger and larger and have uh, more pastoral staff, it, it, it tends to be senior pastoral staff um, who are uh, part of the elder team. And then you have lay elders who are called by God to serve in that way within the life of the church. So let's look at this, uh, particularly what do elders do? That's who elders are. What do elders do? Let's start out looking at this by uh, turning to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. You can look up on here uh, if you're um, not prepared or don't want to turn back and forth in your own Bible. Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 17, tells us that from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So he, he calls in the elders, plural, of the church in Ephesus, those who are responsible for the life of the church in Ephesus, to meet with him. Down in verse 28, he gives them this charge, Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. Now, who comes first, keeping watch over the flock or themselves? Themselves, that's right. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. Now, don't miss this, because we, we claim to be historically people of the word of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is God's design. It's his call in the life of the church, both as a system and individuals within the lives of specific churches. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. You want to talk about a terrifyingly humble task? Be shepherds of the church of God, which, by the way, he bought with his own blood. Be shepherds of the church of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That word gives you a hint into what elders do. That's Acts chapter 20. Let's look at 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This is one of those passages where you see these three words in in Greek that we translate into English used interchangeably throughout the passage. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock which is under your care, watching over them, Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So here you see Peter writing a circular letter to a number of churches using the same terms, the same theology, the same philosophy that Paul uses as he writes to the elders, the leaders of the church 
in Ephesus. When you see in verse 2 this idea translated in the NIV here, watching over them, it's literally uh, exercising oversight, as Paul spoke about with the elders, the church in Ephesus. What do, what do elders do? Let me give you some specifics. One, elders, elders teach. We, we already saw that, but elders teach throughout the life of the church. If one is serving as an elder, he ought to be teaching somewhere. Whether it's with students, it's children, it's adult Bible studies, it's seminars, it's uh, learning uh, as God calls and gives them the gift to, to fill in from time to time on Sunday and be able to teach and preach in this manner. However the case, elders are called to teach. Called to teach. 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.9. And in that sense, um, because people have wrestled with, okay, so then what's the, what's the, the role among elders of like a, a lead pastor who has primary responsibility for teaching? He is certainly an equal among elders, um, but given that task, somewhat maybe of a first among equals. There's, there's not a, a good way to talk about it, but at best, that is what we could say that I think is faithful to the New Testament, a first among equals. They teach. They lead. They lead. Um, this is what exercising oversight means. This is what the word translated overseer means. Leader over congregations for the health, growth, maturity, thriving, missional focus, and unity of the life of the church. To lead in Christ's church is to exercise oversight, to guide, to protect. This is what a shepherd does. All this shepherding language is uh, largely lost on us as metro 21st century people. But that's what a shepherd does. He guides a flock. He protects it. He nourishes it. He leads it. We see this reality in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the author of Hebrews says, have confidence, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Not to you, but give an account to God. That it's God, Acts chapter 20 says, through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who appoints elders as overseers in the life of a church. And it is to God whom they're accountable. To the church, yes, secondarily. To one another, absolutely, and ultimately to God. And then he says this, and any of you who raised your hands, hands who were parents, you're gonna get this next part of the verse. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no benefit to you. He basically says, it, it's of no benefit to you to have grumpy, crotchety leaders who are always bickering and fighting with you. Have you ever, mom or dad, just said, would you just do this because I'm asking it of you? Would you just do this without arguing or without fighting, without pushing back? Because when that happens in a home, the home is more joyful, is it not? Does that mean you're going to get everything right, parents? Man, that was too silent for me to be comfortable. You people scare me. No, it doesn't. The only people who get everything right as parents are those whose kids haven't come yet. <laughs> when you're getting ready to have kids or you're a parent or you're, or you're pregnant or you're reading a magazine about it, you're going to be an amazing parent. And then kids come. And then you, you still can be amazing for a little while until they begin to talk and do their own things. 
Uh, I heard a guy say this week that, that lead pastors, senior pastors especially, who are primarily responsible for the teaching and preaching life uh, and ultimately for the vision of the church, uh, he said, need to, to be married, to have a wife and to have children, if for no other reason than to keep them humble. I think this is a terribly humbling job anyway. So I think that guy's a psycho. But I shouldn't have said that. I, don't, I got a lot of medicine in me this morning. So... Um, I'm going to have to dial it back and just suck it up next Sunday. But it is true because your wife and your kids are unimpressed with you. They know all of who you are, right? Uh, I mentioned Alistair Begg earlier. He, he talked about uh, with regard to his kids. He said, this is funny in their family, but it's funny because it stings so much. Um, he said, sometime they would be on a road trip. And he said, from time to time, he was known to uh, pontificate, right? To go on a sort of a, a verbal venture while they're driving, and sometimes he would go on about something, and then uh, it was done. And from the very back, his young son would say, and this word of encouragement brought to you by your pastor. Um, because the truth is, God's not called me to be my kid's pastor, but to be their dad. And if I try to be my kid's pastor, it's a great way for me to mess them up, more than just by being their dad. I'll doubly mess them up. Right, so, so elders are called to lead. They're responsible before God for exercising that gift, which, and I just, I just need to remind you that, that Romans chapter 12 lists leadership as a spiritual gift in the church, which means we don't all have it. We don't all have that uh, visioning, decision-making gift within the church, and we don't all need it. We all have different gifts, and the beauty and the power and the fulfillment for us comes as we exercise our gifts in the church as God calls us to. Third thing they do, they model. They model this kind of progressive sanctification, not perfectly, but consistently. Not perfectly, but consistently. If you uh, look back or just remember 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 3, chapter, P, uh, chapter 5, verse 3 in 1 Peter, says, that elders are, are not to lord it over those who've been entrusted to them, but to be examples to the flock. To say, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, however perfectly so. But it is the passionate pursuit of Christ's likeness that God calls elders to. Finally, at least, and this is not a, a comprehensive list, but it is a representative list of what God has called elders to do in the life of the church. Elders pray. They pray for the church. They pray consistently daily for the church. They pray for individuals going through certain circumstances within the church and situations. We see this uh, with the, the precursor of, of elders as we uh, look at apostles and uh, table servants or deacons called out there in Acts chapter 6. The apostle said, man, take care of this. Bring unity back here. Uh, be shock absorbers. Make sure that the ministry is being facilitated in the church so that, so that we can stay committed to the ministry of the word and prayer. Word and prayer. Finally, let me say a word about how elders do what they do. Because if you've got elder baggage, I'm willing to bet that you have it because elders did not do what they were called to do in the way in which they were called to do it. Uh, the, the first question we answered and, the, and the third, this last question are so significant because if you put the wrong people into positional leadership within the church 
or positional servanthood as deacons, you're going to have a continual train wreck on your hands. But also, if we do what God has called us to do in a way other than God has called us to do it, we're going to hurt people. We're going to hurt people. Look back again at, at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Now look at this, verse three, not lording it over those entrusted to you. Not lording it over those entrusted to you. Elders are to elder within the church in humility, with grace, with patience, uh, with patience, that's not even a word. With patience, right? Be, just because you're an elder or you're a deacon or you're a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study leader or a small group leader or a staff member or anything else doesn't mean you get to be exempt from the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. In fact, these things should be growing more and more and more in you. This is the way elders are called to lead in the church. Doesn't mean they'll always get it right. They're going to be human beings. They're going to have off days, off moments, off conversations. But it means in general, they lead with humility and gentleness. They lead with humility and gentleness. It's why I'm a fan of an elder model that doesn't move except uh, through consensus, right? That it's not about votes. It's about hearing from God and agreeing on it together. And if there's disagreement, we just wait, right? We just wait and keep praying. Because elders don't typically deal with the minutia of the church. They deal uh, with big issues in the life of the church. That's how elders do it. Why, why are we talking about this? If you've been around Lost Mountain for a while, you know that our church has had uh, a leadership board. We've had deacons. We've had staff. Uh, but for the last uh, six months at least, maybe uh, pushing back a little bit into eight, our leadership board has, talk, has been talking about how do we get healthier, more functional, more biblical, more unified as a church. And as we talked and we looked at eldership, we agreed that this is where God is leading us, right? Here's the amazing thing, and this is where I'm even uh, changing and thinking and growing and processing in this idea. I tend to be a pragmatist when it comes to how churches are organized. I care uh, about the character and the gifting of those put into uh, positions within the church so that the church might be empowered and unified. And that's typically how I've operated. Call it what you want to, uh, whatever. Um, but reading over the last few months, uh, I ran across an article on, is it important to call elders elders? And obviously, it's not a hard stamp kind of thing. But one of the things the author of this article said, and I think he's brought me around to this, is that, look, it quiets a lot of discussions when you just call elders elders. It was good enough for the New Testament because, here's the thing, if you've got a leadership board or a church council or what, you know, a leadership team or, or an executive team or whatever else you want to call it, you can't go to the New Testament and say, what do they do? How do they operate? And what kind of character should they have? But you certainly can with elders. You certainly can with, with elders. And I think he's, he's right. So this is the direction we're headed as a church. So how are we gonna go about this? We're gonna go about it with patience and grace. Like I said, leadership board, we've been talking about it for six, eight months. We've rolled it into our, our deacons meetings and discussions for at least four months, maybe longer. 
Now, I'm preaching on it. We're going to have a called members meeting the first Sunday uh, in April. You don't have to jot that down. You won't miss it. We'll let you know. Uh, right before uh, a period of, of uh, prayer and worship uh, and a time of Scripture as we pray toward Easter and toward the movement of God uh, in our lives and in our church at Easter. But we're going to have a called members meeting before that uh, first night of, of worship and prayer and Scripture. Um, just to say, hey, if you're a member, if you're a covenant member of, of Lost Mountain Baptist Church and you've got questions or just want more clarity or want to know what does this look like and how are we going to do it, come that night. Come and let's talk about it because we'll vote, we'll vote on this move, this structural move at conference late in, in April. But it's, it's, a, it's an unhealthy practice to debate and decide in the same meeting. Even Christians don't do that well usually. So all the, all the pressure's off when you have a time where you just gather and you're talking. You're discussing what this looks like. What's it going to look like? Once uh, that vote is done, we'll spend the better part of the rest of the year, probably all the rest of the year, a full eight months, beginning to, to, to work that out exactly how it's going to work for us in the life of our church with the hope and the expectation that as we organize ourselves, as we see the church organized in the New Testament, that it increases our sense of unity, it expands our ministry reach, it empowers our missional effectiveness, that we have more joy. We see over time more baptisms, more spiritual growth, more marriages reconciled because we're operating as a church the way that God has lined out his church to operate. As the band makes their way back up here this morning and um, begins preparing to lead us in, in a brief time of response and reflection. My hope and my prayer is that we would be a church who, who trusts and follows God courageously, compassionately, and without reservation. And we'd say, God, we want to be where you want us to be, where you've laid it out in your word. We're going to trust you as you guide us there. Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians that every promise of God in Christ is yes. And amen. Every promise of God in Christ is yes. God's calling us to be a church that trusts him because every promise of God in Christ is yes. And amen. The end, may it be, let it be so. God, take us and lead us. If you are a, a baptized believer in here this morning, we invite you at any time while we're responding and reflecting through worship during this next song to step out as you feel led. If you feel led, make your way to one of the four communion stations in the room. Remembering that every promise in God through Christ is yes and amen because of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because of the victory of Christ on the cross and all of the implications of the atonement that he makes possible. Let me pray for us. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.